How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia children's series? A few of you. In the, I just, well, I read it through a couple of years ago, but I'm rereading it with a couple of my two oldest boys, and we were reading the, uh, the Silver Chair. And just a couple of nights ago, we were reading where um, Eustace Scrub and Jill Pole and uh, Puddle Glum, the Marsh Wiggle, are all in the room with really Prince Rillian, and uh, the evil witch comes in. She's in the form of a beautiful woman. She comes in and she's casting these spells and on them and and persuading them that they do not believe the things that they really believe. And uh, so the the story goes on and. And it gets to the high point where they mention Aslan's name and go, oh, Aslan, who's Aslan? You know, he's just a lion. Yeah, sure, he's in your mind. And, and they're all getting into this sleepy stupor. And they, they kind of know what's happening, but for, as, they go, as it unfolds, they can no longer, they've lost their bearings. They don't even know what's true anymore. Now they're believing lies and, and they're just going to drift off into these enchantments. And the Marsh Wiggle, Puddleglum, who's a half-frog-like creature, um, has got, he knows where he's going, but he's got just enough sense to go over and stick his foot in the fire. And as he does, it, it burns him, it wakes him up, it stinks, and totally disrupts the spell that's being cast on him. And so he finally snaps out of it. Like, that's right. That's what I believe. This is what's true. And so he, the story goes, he confronts the, the witch, and they all wake up to what's true. And when we were led this morning in worship, we were able to concentrate on the glory of God, the glory of Christ in the Revelation song. It, it, it's those type songs that tell us what's true. And I just bring that up to tell you the last two weeks, Two weeks ago, we got the Bay Area flu that's been going around. All of my kids have it. had it. My wife went to ER, seven liters of fluid and a whole nine yards. And this week, we got the other bug going around, whatever's going around. So, and when my wife gets sick, the whole ship sinks. It's okay if I get sick. It's okay if all the kids get sick. But if my wife gets sick, oh my goodness, it's bad. So anyway... And I just got back two weeks ago from Ukraine. Actually, the day I got back, the whole thing started. So no, no getting over jet lag, just jump into the fire. And, but anyway, what I, I, the reason I brought the illustration up is because that's, that's what I feel like sometimes. You know, I mean, sometimes it just all caves in, and you're going, you're stinking. You know, God, I'm, I'm losing sight of things. And then the enemy, he capitalizes on, on those kind of things, and he... And seeks to destroy what's, what's true. What we hold on to. And so thank you, brother, for leading us in that this morning. I, I love those wake-up calls. What we're going to look at this morning in uh, 1 John 3, 1-3, I've titled, The Perfected Love of God. The Perfected Love of God. And to set the stage for this, I want to look at chapter 4 and lead into it. John the Apostle writes 
addressing several things. His prologue, what he introduces the book with, is very similar to the prologue in John's Gospel, which I hear you guys are in that. So if you remember back to that, and uh, he appeals to uh, the Word, the life, and the light. All three of those are mentioned in John 1 as he opens his statements. And he centers that in the person of Christ, who is the living Word, who became flesh. He is the life, absolute reality. And he's the light, true understanding. And he picks that up here, I think, brings that up as a way of reminder. But then he launches into several things. One of them is to how you may know you're actually a believer. But he has this theme that he repeats. He talks about obeying God's commands. That's one of the ways. But this one thing is love. Love for God, love for people. So with that thought, look at chapter 4, verse 7. And we're going to read through the remainder of that chapter there to set the stage. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. To be born of someone means you're entering into a family. I have six children. They were all born into my family. That's a key, important thought. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. That's the first time he mentions that that word, and that's where I got the title. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. This too is tapping into the phrase, the perfected love of God. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. 
We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, family member, hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, his family member, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen, his father. Because we're all in a family. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Now throughout that, what we just read, you see this interplay that goes on. Justification, sanctification. Justification, sanctification. God loved us in Christ. Therefore, we love. Everything we have is rooted in Christ. Everything we're going to look at this morning is rooted in Christ. So look at verse 1 of chapter 3. And we're going to, you can outline this, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 1. The fact of being beloved children. Verse 2, the future reality of being beloved children. And verse 3, the present effects of being beloved children. Everything in the title, the perfected Love of God stems out of, you can see that in 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. We used to fear because punishment hung over our heads as guilty sinners, enemies of the God we sang about. It's been removed. All of that's been removed. So there's no fear. It's Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But what? Love. That's all God has for you as a child. Love. So there's no fear. That's the beauty. This is perfected love. So John says, see how great love the Father has given or bestowed or granted to us. The first thing in reference to the fact that we are His children is John says, look at it. Behold, the old Older English version says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. See it. Stop and think about it. Meditate on this. Because we use the word love in our culture all the time. I love a burger. I love in and out. I love, I'm from Alabama. I love Alabama football. 
Roll Tide, here we go, okay. They're playing next week, right? I, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love my kids, and that's great. That's on a much greater plane. But is there a special category in your mind when you hear the phrase, the love of God? Like, it goes off the charts in your mind. The love of God? Because it would be two things. Number one, if you don't know that love, there is no special category. It's just a phrase that floats in the air. Or number two, you know it, but you haven't looked, as John says. You're not looked into this. And so it hasn't rolled around in your chest and warmed your bosom. John says, see how great is the love of God. Which leads us immediately to the Son and the cross. Because John in his previous, in his gospel, he said, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. I hope that you've taken time to think through the reality. You remember when Jesus said um, the Pharisees were, they, they saw him about to heal, and he said, uh, which is greater, to heal a man, to give him his health, or to forgive his sins? Which is harder? I think the way we might look at that is we might look at that and say, well, it's neither one's harder. You're God. That's not true. It is way harder to forgive sins. It's, un, it's reversing everything that's pointed at humans. It takes a massive work to undo wrath pointed at us and to make possible nothing but the eternal love of God for His children. That's why John says this is a great love and we need to look into it. We need to have a special category in our minds when we think about the love of God. So he says, see how great a love the Father has given us. And the word see is stare at it, see it for what it is, and draw the right conclusions. It's used of Jesus appearing to the disciples. He says, behold, here, I'm not a spirit. Behold, here, the scars. You need to draw the right conclusion. I'm the living, risen Christ. You know, they drew the right conclusions because in the book of Acts, they exploded into ministry based on the one truth. He's risen. That's it. Totally changed them. They drew the right conclusions. When we look at the love of God, we need to draw the right conclusions. He's got something He wants us to see. But notice, 
this is the love that the Father has granted. He has bestowed it. This has nothing to do with us. It's something in God's sovereign choice said, you hell-bent sinner, angry, hostile enemy of mine, spurning my glory, hating me, running away from me, I'm going to love you. <laughs> I'm going to do something for you that will make it possible for me not to destroy you, but to give you all of my family love. I'm going to lavish this on you. I know you don't want me, you don't want anything to do with me, but I am what's best for you and I'm going to give you myself and I'm going to make this possible because I'm going to take away your punishment and sending my son to absorb it. That's how much I love you. There is nothing at a greater extent I could demonstrate to you this massive love I have for you. Because I get like that too. God, you love me right now. You're really putting me through it. You're putting me in the fire. About two months ago, no, it was September, end of September. I worked for Davy Tree out of San Ramon, and I did a special project up in the Sierras on a fire they had uh, by the power lines, and it was uh, a lot of timber got burned. So we were dropping a bunch of trees by the, uh, by the power lines, and one of my coworkers got struck by a tree. And so some other guys came down the mountain and grabbed several of us, and we went running up the hill. And I don't do well with that kind of stuff at all. I mean, I don't do, I don't do well with my kids gets a cut. I mean, I'm ready to pass out, getting weak. Honey, I need your help here. I feel a little weak. But anyway, they called me and obviously needed some leadership. And I'm going, Lord, you're going to have to help me because I don't want to step into what I he got hit by a tree. So I knew it was going to be bad. And I'm just praying the whole way up. Lord, please give me strength. Give me strength. And I jump over a log and I look down and he's dead. Eyes are open. How many of you ever looked in the eyes of a dead person? It doesn't look like real eyes anymore, does it? It's hollow. And my heart just sank. And I said, guys, we got to get him out. We got to do CPR. And honestly, I felt like I was going to cave in. It just was too much. And it's at times like that. Good Lord, do you love me? I sent my son for you. I sent my son for you. And he hung on a cross. I could not do anything greater to say, I love you. Even here. Yes, I love you. That's the love he's granted to us. It's rooted in his son. But he goes on to say, it's so great and he accomplished so much that we are called his children. <laughs> children of the living God. The most glorious, infinitely perfect being in whose presence 
There is no darkness, nothing but perfect, pristine beauty. And he calls us children? It's so astonishing that he says the next phrase, and we are. Because I think he anticipates what you and I say when we look at this. Me? Your child? Really? I'm your child? Yeah, you are. With all the rights and privileges. That's the love your father has for you. Do you think about that? Do you just sit around and chew on that? In your quiet times, when you're driving down the road, when you listen to gospel songs, you say, that's the love He has for me. I tell my children when I bring them in to discipline them as when they sin, and I sit one of my sons, usually it's one of my sons, <laughs> I sit one of my sons down and I say, son, no matter what you've done, which sometimes is, you know, at the first response, I, sometimes it's so bad, I go, ooh, I want to kill you. Oh. And then I walk away for a minute. When I'm spirit-filled, I walk away for a minute. And I say, Lord, I need you to help me to deal with him in love and not anger. And I bring him in there. I say, son, no matter what you've done, you will never stop being my son. You will never enter a state of being outside of my love because you're my son. I'm a sinful human father. And if I can say that to my son, and I know you feel the same way for your kids, if we can say that, put that on an infinite level. The father says that of his children. I don't care what you've done. I banished it all on my son in the, on the cross. I love you, and you cannot change my feelings towards you. You cannot change my intense affections for you. You know God has affections for you? That's hard to imagine. The infinite being has affections for you. Wow. He delights in you. He delights in you. Sinner! <laughs> no, child! Child! You know how much he loves you? Turn to John 17. This amazing thought. Just mind boggling. We'll start in verse 20. Jesus is praying. It's his high priestly prayer. He's praying right before he's going to be crucified. He's praying for these disciples. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
that they also may be in us. That's an amazing statement right there. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. And listen to this. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. How much? Even as you have loved me. Is that true? God the Father loves us as He loves His Son? Can you believe that? The Father loves us as He loves His Son. That's intense. Really intense. C.S. Lewis called the love of the Trinity the dance of God where each member always enjoying perfect fellowship and love as it were in a dance together. And we were created to partake of that dance. The Son restored that for us. And that's what he's speaking of here. Is that we get to jump in that. That's amazing. Now. Look at this. See how great the Father's love is for you. And draw the right conclusions from this. I just got to tell you, I am freezing (laughs) I was in Ukraine, and I wore long john bottoms every day, and I was fine. I got back to the Bay Area, and I have been freezing ever since. It snowed the whole time I was there, and I was not cold, and now I'm freezing. I don't know what's wrong in the Bay Area, huh? Hey, yeah, yeah, I'm shaking up here. My legs are shaking. I'm talking to you, my lips are quivering. I feel like my son, when he gets out of the shower, daddy, I need the towel. Anyway. Ay, 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 the last part of verse 3. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. There is a problem. There's a negative side of... That's not a problem. There's a negative side. All these benefits, and we're going to look at the next two verses, are more benefits that the Father has planned for us. But there's a negative aspect, and that is our old siblings. Remember, we used to be a part of another family. Colossians says that... um, You were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and you were placed into the kingdom of His dear, beloved Son. Heirs with Christ. That's our new status. But our old siblings, they don't love God just like we did not. Romans 3.23, they are in a state of falling short of God's glory they don't love his glory we love his glory they don't love his lord sovereignty they don't love his infinite absolute 
creatorship. They don't love those things that we love. And so there's an animosity between us and them. Or from their side to us. Because they don't love the family we're a part of. So he says, the world does not know us because it did not know him. But the second thing, the first is our present reality. We are called children. The second is our future state as his children. And this is huge. I love this verse. I love this verse. There's so much here. Beloved, now we are children of God. He reminds us again because we do forget that and it's hard to get that centered in our heads because the enemy accuses us. We know our past. We tend to view God the way we used to as an ogre, hard, heavy-handed lie from Satan instead of our loving Father. We are children of God, and yet, as His children, it has not appeared what we will be. Future. And we know a lot from the New Testament, even the Old Testament, what we will be in one sense. We know there's going to be a change that takes place. But John the Apostle, who would write the book of Revelation, with all that that he knows there, and I don't I'm not saying which one of these came first. I don't know. But with all that he would see, still he says, he says, we don't know everything we're going to be. And before we get to his next point, turn back to Psalm 16. I love this. Does anybody know what Psalm 16 is famous for? Because it's quoted in the New Testament. Specific, well, it's quoted more than once in more, more than one place, but a specific reference found here before you look. It's in verse 9, uh, or is it verse 10? Verse 9. You will not abandon my soul, David writes, to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Peter picks up on this in his sermon, and he speaks, this is referring to the resurrection of Christ. Jesus was raised, we're raised with Him. Everything in the next verse depends on a resurrected body. We get tastes of it now, but we can't get it all until we have a body that can handle it. It's massive. You will make known to me the path of life. And listen to this. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. You can't think of how happy you're going to be. We don't know what all that looks like yet, is what John's saying. We can't even get our minds around it all. 
Paul would say this, ear hasn't heard, eye has not seen, mind is not conceived of all that God has prepared for His children. All of it. Which means you can sit and daydream all you want and you haven't come close to it. That's how massive God has a gift for His children. And it's all linked to His love. He loves us. He wants to give this to us. He wants to make us eternally happy. So, John says in verse 2, It has not appeared yet what we will be. We know that when enter in King Jesus, when He appears, oh, that's huge. When He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him. So the second point, our future state as beloved children is linked right here in the seeing of the living Christ. You have a thirst within your soul, even as a lost person. It's undeniable for glory you have a thirst a hunger a craving to grab hold of glory you were made for this god created you for himself but as an unbeliever you chase everything under the sun as solomon said to get a hold of glory whether it be fame power Money, sex, cars, wealth everywhere, land, prestige, popularity, notoriety in your field of work, your hobbies, as a scholar, as a singer, as an entertainer, an athlete, wherever you're, it's built into people. And in all of those avenues, they fail. Because glory is found in God alone. Isaiah said, Yahweh speaking, I am Yahweh, I will not give my glory to any other substitute. The creation is supposed to help us look out and see glory, 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 glory. It's in God. But Romans 1 tells us that because of something greatly flawed within us, we don't see the second half. It's in God. We look somewhere else. But there's a key component. When, when, when the disciples would get a distinctive glimpse of... Remember, when Jesus, according to Philippians 2, Jesus... The man Jesus, the whole time, is veiling his deity with his humanity. He doesn't let it shine through. It's totally veiled. When you looked at him, you saw a man. And then there were times when it, he allowed it to come out, to show through. 
And when the disciples caught glimpses of it, like Peter in the boat, Luke 5, 6, uh, whichever one of those chapters it is, he says, after the miracle, the catch there, Peter says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I've seen glory here. I'm coming face to face with it. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's all excited about what's going on. He sees this glory. And then the Father speaks up. He falls flat. Isaiah in the temple, seeing the Lord, probably Christ, in His glory. He's overwhelmed. John the Apostle sees Jesus in Revelation 1. He falls like a dead man. That's why also there's a connection in Psalm 16, verse 10, resurrection, verse 11, I believe, a connection to being able to handle all of that that's in God's presence. We need a resurrection body. But Jesus, the living Christ, take everything that pertains to God's Infinite, glorious nature. When you and I see Him, we will see glory. The glory of God. Now I want to take you to a passage. Turn to uh, Job. I think it's 16 is where I want to go. Or is it 26? If I'd look at my notes, I'd know exactly where I am. <laughs> ah, 19. Job 19. That's good, because I would have looked for a while. Job 19. Look at uh, verse 25. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. Here's Job in the midst of his agony. Oh, which, by the way, you remember when I alluded earlier about how we can lose sight of everything? What I believe anymore, Job was there. Job said things in the middle who, that you look at and you go, wow, he, that's strong statements, Job. But remember what God said about Job at the start? Job was no slouch. We would have definitely held him as a hero. And what I found out even up on the mountain when the, the, the man dead there and I'm trying to interact in this is that you will you have no idea the depths at which God can allow you to sink in his providence still deeply loving you but for his sovereign purposes to produce in us dependence on him testing of our faith dark places what's going to get you out right here we see an answer and we see it all through the New Testament. Verse 25, as for me, of all, I don't know what's going on, Job says, but as for me, I do know this, my Redeemer lives. <laughs> my Redeemer. That's Jesus. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh. So after my skin is destroyed, after I've died, yet from my flesh, 
my new body, I shall see God. No man has seen God at any time, 1 John 4. No one has seen the Father but the Son. Moses, you can't see all of me, you'll die. But here, we will see God. And then the next verse he adds, Whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. Paraphrase the next phrase. My heart faints within me. Brothers and sisters, this is going to take place according to 1 John 3, 2. When we see Him, we will see God. In His glory, in His splendor. It's so great that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it's that quick, will be changed. That's from seeing your Savior. That's the gift the Father has for His children out of His love. That's a love gift. He wants to satisfy. He is doing so now in increments. But then it's the full thing. He wants to satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. The glory of God in the face of Christ for you to look at and behold. And when, we, when He appears, it's that quick we will be like Him. You mean all of this falls off? Yes. You mean I'm going to be the superhuman that every lost and every other person is epitomized in all the stories? Yes, and way more than that. Why? Because I'm going to see Christ. And I will be like Him just... We will see Him just as He is. There'll be no more veil on His glory. There'll be no more. I love the ending of Philippians to the passage there about Christ's humility. And then he says, after he went all the way down to the cross, God has exalted him, given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every human being, every created thing for that matter, but every human being, lost man alike, is going to see him and confess you are Lord. And I've often wondered, I don't know that that's going to be, okay, you're Lord, I finally give up and say it. I think they're going to be stunned at His glory. Even an unbelieving, unregenerate person is going to look at His infinite glory and say, you are Lord. There's no other contestant. It's clear. It's not me and it's nobody else. You are Lord. You, Jesus Christ, are Lord. It's undeniable the splendor and glory of that King.
right? As Chris Tomlin wrote about. So, set your eyes there. Set your eyes on this living Christ. Long for that day. Live in freedom from the chains of our culture here, the mundane. Hold on to this life. It's all here. It's not. It's, it's not at all. And maybe it will take afflictions in our lives to move us past that, but His glory is enough to sustain us. As a matter of fact, side note, it is His glory, it's His compassion as well, but it's His glory that sustains us in suffering. Paul said, I am convinced that these light afflictions, wow, 2 Corinthians 11, light afflictions, these light afflictions cannot compare to the eternal weight of glory in Him and in His presence. So there's no comparison. And the only way we're going to really believe that is if we rehearse these things in our heart, in our minds. That's why even here He says, look into this. How much does the Father love you? Look into this. He's called you a child. And besides that, as a child, He's granting you your soul's desire and bringing the living Christ to you. And He's going to receive you. Now, verse 3. That was our future reality. What's in store for us? What are the present effects of being beloved children? What should happen? Believer? Or professing believer, test point here. Everyone who has this hope. Stop right there. Is this your hope? What is hope? It is the earnest expectation of something. Not here all granted now, but yet future. I'm banking everything on it. Every human lives based on some kind of hope somewhere. Maybe it's the government to save me. Maybe it's this trial to end. Maybe as a young person, it's that career that I'm going I'm to launch into. It's that relationship I'm going to get. That's not the hope. And you find out that they don't hold up. But the hope, if your hope is here, is your hope in Christ? That's not a catchword phrase. Is your hope, is everything your existence is for in Jesus Christ? Colossians 3, when Christ who is our life, is He your life? I could clearly say this. If Jesus Christ is somewhere on the horizon, if He's just a category, you haven't seen Him very well. Remember what we just talked about? When He does show Himself in Philippians 2, at the end of the age, everybody's going to see Him quite clearly. And so the question is, are you seeing Him now with the eyes of your heart, as Paul says? Are you seeing Him with the eyes of your heart such that all your hope is anchored in Him? 
Verse 2 is the future look. And based on our hope being there, which is rooted in everything we saw in His life and His work on the cross, that hope has anchored our soul to cause us to live a certain way now. So there's a forward look. There's also a reverse look that I think is extremely important because everything God has for you is rooted in Christ. Why do you think that phrase appears everywhere in the New Testament? In Christ, in Christ. Beloved, in Christ. Heirs, with, heirs of, of everything in Christ. With Christ. Thankful, in Christ. Because it's all there. You know the song, Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. God has invited us. As a matter of fact, He's called us His children He's going to seat us at His table with Him. With the eternal King and His Son. To feast and banquet in Christ. Justification in Christ. God's love He bestowed on us. He granted it to us in Christ. So it's no wonder He hinges everything here. Is that your hope? Who is this Christ? Go to the Gospels. Do you spend much time in the Gospels looking at the Christ who came and displayed God's character? Do you see Him there? Are you enamored by it? Are you over and over astounded by the vision that the Gospel writers portray of Christ? He is, from our verse, pure. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself. In chapter 4, all throughout John's epistle here, he repeats these tests of how you can know you are really a child of God. What are evidences? This is not what causes you to be a child of God. It's rooted in justification. That is God declaring you free from all your sins. Righteous because of Christ. But there are things that you will see. And here he says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. In John, 1 John 4, he says, or chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when, when we love God and uh, when we love God and observe His commandments. Verse three: For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Do His commandments feel like a big heavy weight for you? You have not understood the gospel because His commandments stem out of already. You're my child. You're loved by me. You can prove nothing to me. You don't have to fear me. If you fear me, it's because you're afraid you're going to be judged by me. You haven't understood the gospel. Romans 3 proceeds 
precedes Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation anymore. Do you believe this simple truth with all your heart? Hey, I'm guilty. Wait a second. Christ died for my sins. Is that your hope? There's no fear because there's no punishment anymore hanging over your head. You're his child. Now, everyone who has this hope in him, in Jesus, purifies himself. His commandments aren't burdensome because my hope is in him. Of course I want to be like him. He's everything to me. Who is he? He is pure. Listen to these paraphrases of texts you'll probably recognize. When reviling insults were cast at him, he did not return them. When his betrayer came to identify him with a kiss, he called him friend. He intercedes for you. He is the good shepherd who faithfully loves you. He's moved with compassion toward your weaknesses. And he comes to your aid and he gives you strength. He does not distance himself from you, although he is infinitely above you. But he calls you his friend and brother or sister. He does not break a bruised reed, nor does he extinguish a smoldering wick that would otherwise be considered no longer of any use. But he again comes to your aid. He did not cast away a failing Peter, but he restored him. In a word, he is perfect. That's the love gift of the Father to his children. So when we pull these thoughts together of having our hope fixed on Him and our eager anticipation fixed on Jesus, His blazing glory that we will see at His coming. But also we're captivated by His pristine moral purity. What does that cause us to do? Purify ourselves. We look at someone so beautiful, majestic, glorious, and it causes us to purify ourselves. It's called being motivated by the grace of God to obey His commands. That's the present effects. Now you see why John says, look into this love. How great is this love for you? You are His children. You have the privilege of seeing Jesus Christ, the living, glorious God-man. He's coming for you. Well, That last phrase, John also picks up on this, the very last verse. He goes through everything in this epistle. 
And then he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. That's not like a funny way to end that book. They're all threaded together. Think about what we just looked at in verse 2. The infinite glory of God in the face of Christ. You know what an idol is? Substitute for that. And it's always linked to our affections. Where's your hope? Is it resting in and contemplating the love of God for you, His child, at the expense of Christ? Warm yourselves with this. This is what God has for you. He deeply loves you. So much that He's going to see this through all the way to the end, even through death, and usher you into eternal paradise in His presence where you will enjoy the rich fellowship. Now you see dimly as through a mirror. Now we grow from grace to grace by faith. Then we'll see it all clearly. That's yours. It's a gift from God. It's enveloped in His love. It's rooted in His Son. Revel in this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you. I don't know the hearts of people here, the struggles they have, but I'm sure they're like me. They struggle, doubt, unbelief, fears, wrestling with your providence and the, the deck of cards you handed. Father, your love is, is infinite. You've shown it to us. You love us as you love your Son. You love us enough to give your Son for us. God, we can't even get our arms around it. So Holy Spirit, help us with this. Help our hearts. Help us to activate faith on what we see in your Word. And grant us us glimpses of our dear Savior. Yes, you love us. Thank you. Amen.